In the great halls of USA Today, we assemble the newsroom's mightiest nerds. Brett Molina. I'm so sorry for the producer of this podcast. <laughs> Kelly Lawler. I will fight you on it. Brian Truitt. Spoiler town! <laughs> Together, they form the Mothership. Their mission? To harness their collective encyclopedic knowledge of nerdiness in all its forms. To dissect every trailer, plot twist, and game released for the geekiest of fans. The Mothership, saving the universe from bad comic book adaptations every Friday. All aboard the Mothership, the Geek Culture Podcast from the USA Today Network. Thank you so much for joining us, and happy Friday, everybody. Happy Friday! Let's meet the crew. I'm Brett Molina. I play video games. And what's getting me through this week is... Gosh, I, am I going to say NBA 2K again? Yes, I'll say it. And I'm going to shut up about it starting now. <laughs> You're never going to shut up about it. Uh, I'm Brian Truitt. I watch movies. And uh, what's getting me through this week is The Nevers, um, the new Joss Whedon HBO um, drama supernatural show. I, I, I guess we're, you know, we're supposed to be canceling Joss Whedon. Out in, in you know the greater greater, greater uh, world, uh, but the show's pretty good. I, I really like it, um, and you know it's it's got some weird stuff going on. It's like Victorian steampunk, Buffy team kind of stuff. People's superpowers, um, kind of X Men X Men vibe too. Um, but I dig it. I kind of want to see where it goes. If this is your first time listening, welcome. New episodes of the Mothership drop every Friday, and you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. While you were on Apple Podcasts, it would be amazing if you could write a quick review about the show because you help other fans who love nerdy pop culture find us. And as a bonus, you get a shout out on the next episode. So try it out. Tell us what you want to see from the show moving forward. Don't forget, along with leaving a review, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Mothership Pod, or you can send an email to MothershipPod at USAToday.com. This is a very special episode because this is like a double feature. We have two very wonderful special guests. Let's start with number one. Here's a clip. We sold well over 400,000 of these. It grew into a billion dollar franchise. Star Wars films to date have roughly made $7 billion at the box office. The toys have made twice that amount. She has had 180 careers. He had a bearskin cape and a battle axe. And he called him E-Man. It was ingrained in American culture. G.I. Joe was a doll. This is not a doll. This is an action figure. These toys have become my life. There hadn't been a sex object like that handed to a little girl. Power, power, power. I have the power. It was a very impressive and beautiful toy. When the first boxes were delivered, people were literally attacked. People dove into the boxes. The toys were just so cool at the time. I was immediately blown away first time I saw it. The workmanship in this stuff was unparalleled. We opened the door where kids could imagine doing all sorts of things. Ruth was onto something that literally changed how children play forever. That was from The Toys That Made Us, a great Netflix series that tackles a new toy property from G.I. Joe to Star Wars to He-Man, every episode. 
The executive producer of the show is our first guest, Brian Volk Weiss. He produced a spinoff show, The Movies That Made Us, as well as a variety of comedy specials for everyone from Kevin Hart and Ali Wong. His latest venture is a new series of podcasts coming soon that also tap into a nerdy nostalgia bent. So Brian, not Brian Truitt, but our guest, Brian, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate you having spending taking time to, to chat with us. Thank you for your interest. Still shocking to me. <laughs> we'll talk toys with anybody. That's the thing. We will talk All right. toys and nerd stuff with anybody. All right, cool. I feel comfortable. So let's start here. We ask all our guests this. How are you doing during the pandemic? It, it's a tough question to answer because people are dying uh, and losing jobs. But if I'm being honest, uh, we... We, we, we had our company did, you know, we had an okay year and I've never seen so much of my family uh, in a good way. Um, so it, it ended up uh, being okay for us. Cool. You've, so you've produced these Netflix nostalgia trips and comedy specials. What led you into the podcasting space now? It's the same thing that leads us into everything we do. Uh, I love podcasts and, you know, at some point, the question becomes you own a entertainment company. Why aren't you doing something you love? And that really was the inspiration. Um, We usually jump into the pool of anything new very quickly. Like we're doing our first NFT sale, which is an experiment, but we're doing our first experiment uh, tomorrow. So with podcasts for very deliberate reasons, uh, I decided not to jump into the pool early um, and let other people do that. And then for once we could learn from other people's best practices um, where normally we learn a thousand things not to do uh, and then make it work. So, but for five or six years, I listened to way more podcasts than I watch TV or movies. So, Let's talk a little bit about um, your launch slate. Uh, what can fans expect from these shows? So I'll t- I'll t- this might be a weird way to answer it, but I'll tell you what they should not expect. And this really is the only there, there's two things that connect everything we're doing. And one is what we don't do. And the other is what we do do. What we don't do is anything dark. That's a hundred percent dark. So, There could be stuff that starts dark, is usually dark, but ends in a happy place. We will do that. Uh, But we will not do dark, just dark, murder, incest, anything like that. Somebody else can do it and I will happily listen. That's not what we do. And then the thing that we do do, and to me at least, this is the common variable with all of our podcasts and everything we do, by the way, It's a quote from Quantum Leap that I really took to heart. And it's the line he says in the opening of every episode to make right where once went wrong. And that sounds like a very high and mighty thing to say. So I really want to tell you what I mean by that. Like, we're not trying to cure cancer. We're not trying to end racism or prejudice or or anything. What I mean by that is everything we're doing should in some way correct something. So even toys that made us, the original inspiration was, I just thought it was very strange 
that nobody knew what the origins of the Transformers were or G.I. Joe. Like only Barbie and Star Wars toys had books about them. Like no offense to the War of 1812, but like I was in a Borders books and it was like, why are there two shelves full of books about the War of 1812? And like nothing about Transformers. So that was the quote unquote wrong we were trying to fix. Um, so like we're doing something now. Do you know Margaret Lesh? Name sounds familiar. Name sounds familiar. Are you familiar with her? Margaret Lesh was the executive who basically founded what became known as Fox Kids. Uh, other than the original idea itself, she's single-handedly responsible for Power Rangers, uh, X-Men, the animated series, Batman, the animated series, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I could keep going on and on. No one knows who she is. So that to me was the wrong that we needed to write. And that's why we're doing it. So our podcasts are about bringing knowledge that people don't have that we think they'll enjoy hearing. There's probably a sexier way to say that, but that's the truth. <laughs> Works for us. Um, so what is your nerd origin story? I mean, how did you get interested in Star Trek, Star Wars, all this kind of good stuff we love? So I was born in 76. and As was I. Okay, so what day? January 10th. All right, you're older, so you're my senior. You're my senior. Gotta, <laughs> oh, my gotta, God. I'm the, I'm the grandpa. I was born in 75. I, I got to be respectful now. I'm sorry I was so rude. I, I didn't know you were my senior. Um, but I was young enough, and it sounds like you were too, that I saw Star Wars, but I didn't know what movies were. So I... I didn't know what the word documentary was when I was three. But if, if you really analyze what my mom told me I was doing, because I don't remember any of this, I basically thought Star Wars was a documentary. So for many months, whenever it would come up like, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'd be like, I want to join the rebellion and fly an X-wing and blah, blah, blah. And my mom, who was a scientist, uh, you know, came from her father was the doc. This was very disturbing to her. So she bought me a book. I have it right over there. Um, that basically was the kid's book that showed that the Death Star wasn't bigger than a planet. It was the size of a beach ball. Uh, C-3PO wasn't a robot. There was a guy with his, when the mask was taken off. And from that moment on, and I am so lucky and blessed that this happened to me, it's all I ever wanted to do. I've literally, since that moment, never wanted to do anything else. So that's how it all started. So the toys that made us and movies that made us dive deep into a lot of stuff from our childhoods. And I'm guessing you probably learned a lot of new things, too. Um, along, the, along this process, what's really blown your mind about something that you love? Well, and by the way. This would have been my answer no matter what. It's not because Brian has G.I. Joe in his, <laughs> in his background. I guess there's two. My, I'll tell you my two favorite things I learned from Toys That Made Us. The first is, um, and this is in the episode. It's one of my biggest regrets in my career. The opening, this should have been the opening reenactment. Um, but we just got the story after we'd shot the reenactment. But I love that Hasbro was not planning on having a bad guy for G.I. Joe to fight. 
And it was Marvel. I don't know if you remember this or saw the story, but basically Hasbro hired Marvel to create the backstory for the entire toy line. And the box came to Marvel. They opened the box. It was all the first run GI Joe figures. So they called Hasbro and they were like, Hey, you forgot to send the bad guys. And Hasbro was like, "Uh, what bad guys? And it was Marvel that said, "Uh, how could there be like an army with no bad guys? Who are they going to fight? And Hasbro was like, well, we just figured they would fight Star Wars figures or Batman figures or Barbie dolls. And Hasbro was like, well, or Marvel was like, well, maybe that's good for you. Uh, We can't write a comic book without bad guys. And then if that's not funny enough, Hasbro was like, you just come up with it. And there's some random staff meeting on some random day where they're like, okay, who's the bad guy? And someone's like, Cobra. Cobra's the bad guy. And other like, what? Well, what's Cobra? I don't know, but uh, it sounds cool. And that's, and then Hasbro rushed to come up with two characters, uh, you know, in blue. So if you look at Gen 1 of G.I. Joe, it's like 12 figures, two vehicles are G.I. Joe, and there's two random Cobra soldiers that, and if you've seen any of the original G1s that were rushed out to hit the street, they don't look great. And it was like six months later when the same figure came out looking, you know, Cobra Commander looked like Mickey Mouse. Like, I mean, everything was weird. So that's my number one favorite story. And then my number two favorite story, this one's a little darker, but I love that story about Barbie where her eyes were always looking sideways. The logic being women did not, were not supposed to look you straight in the eye. And it was only in the seventies when people started talking about women's rights and equal and, you know, all of obviously the things that, you know, you would hope were going on hundreds of years earlier that Barbie started looking straight ahead. And I just remember being in that interview, like I teared up. You know, the the woman who told us was, a you know, I think she was in her late 70s to early 80s. She was there when the decision was made to have the eyes being straightforward. And she started tearing up a little bit, explaining to us the story. And then I teared up a little. So I think those are my two favorite stories from making that show. I can't get over Marvel creating the best part of G.I. Joe, which was Cobra. That's like the best part. It's not even close. Well, and there's another story to that. And in, in that episode, that was a great story. But also the fact of like there was one one toy they decided not to color because they like ran out of like cash or something. And they're like, and that's Snake Eyes. And it's just like that is the most popular figure of all time in that line. It's just like it's just because they got cheap and didn't want to like color him. It's amazing. It's amazing. Well, it, it's it, not to split hairs, but I, I think the nuanced answer is really interesting. It wasn't that they were being cheap. It was that they had a budget and they call whenever you see something on a figure that's called uh, a paint application, even though it's not really paint anymore. And the, 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 the quote they got from the factory said every figure could only have, I think, four stickers. And Hasbro was like, well, they're going to look cheap. They need five. And the solution was to sacrifice one figure to make the other figures all look good. And as you said, of course, that became the most popular figure. Shows how much they know what they're doing, you know? It's amazing. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's hilarious. Sometimes I think I'm the only person of any leadership what's position in all of show business that honestly admits to everybody, <laughs> the media, my staff, my friend, everyone. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm aware of it. And you, you let the public decide. And then if they don't like it, you stop making more. And if they do like it, you make more. But I don't know. So now let's talk important stuff. Your toy collection, which unfortunately, this isn't a video podcast, but it looks amazing behind you. Thank you. How many pieces is it? And is there a common theme or just kind of a grab bag of various properties? So it's at this point, I mean, holy moly, uh, probably about 23 to 2400 pieces. Uh, like I said, I'm uh, starting to worry. I do have a problem. Um, uh, it's funny for a couple of years, I was telling people I had 2000 pieces, but in my heart, I really thought I had like 16 or 1700. And I was like, you know, one day I'll break 2000. So I'm not lying, but you know, I just gave them a nice round number, but I really didn't think I had 2000. One day, my daughter who was six at the time was like, we should count. And we counted and there was 2200 pieces. And that I think was in October. So I get between like three and 10 pieces a week. Do the math. <laughs> um, as it relates to your second question, everything in here falls into two categories, either category one, it's either something that always meant a lot to me emotionally, or, and this is not number two, this is still connected to number one, or it's something I've learned about and I become excited about it. So a case in point, I've loved Star Wars since I was three. I probably have seven or 800 Star Wars pieces, the oldest of which are, you know, 42 or 43 years old. A lot of people are shocked to hear this. Uh, I was never into He-Man before the show got greenlit. And I didn't even want to do a He-Man episode, but I thank God uh, was talked into it by some of my uh, colleagues. So I fell in love with He-Man while making the episode. And now I have a gigantic He-Man shelf. So answer one, something I am passionate about that gives me joy to see on my shelf. Answer two, I don't know what it is, I just love the design. Case in point, I barely know anything about Robotech. Barely. I love everything they designed. Entire shelf of Robocop right there. I just love the design. So even though I don't know much about it, I have probably three dozen Robotech pieces. And that's it. There's not the the amount of Christmas. Like I could get 50 Christmas gifts, maybe two make it into the collection. Maybe. So do you have a Holy Grail toy? Is there that one item that you have always wanted in your collection and you still haven't found it? I'm working my way down the list. My number one Holy Grail is Vlix, which is a very obscure character from Star Wars, um, like crazy obscure. I came very close to getting one like three, probably about three weeks ago. And I, I, I screwed up. I just screwed up. Uh, they're very, very expensive. Uh, and that was certainly helped by us uh, not 
stopping to talk about it morning, noon and night for four years. So, by the way, I bought my first He-Man figure the week before the season one premiered for eight dollars. He now goes for between 80 and 125, depending on condition loose. So I've kind of created my own mess. So I don't have flicks, but like this enterprise right here, this white one. That was a holy grail for about six years. And I just got it about four or five months ago. What's it, you know, when I saw on your Instagram, um, you, you had mentioned that, that, you know, you're trying to get your daughter into Star Wars and it hasn't taken yet. And I like, I felt so seen because I have an eight year old daughter. She is not like, I can't get her into to Star Wars at all, but yet she's into wrestling for some whatever reason and like on sunday we were watching wrestlemania and she was like i want an alexa bliss and sasha banks action figures she's never asked for an action figure in her life i'm like yes it's happening finally you're, you're ahead of me because i we, we my daughter and i have not had that moment to uh to put it she loves calico critters and i gotta be honest with you if I knew Calico Critters existed when I was a kid, I, I probably would have played with them too. I mean, they're fantastic. Um, but yeah, that's as close as she's gotten to figure. So are there more seasons of Toys That Made Us or movies that made us to come? Is there a toy property that you're still hoping one day you can cover? There, there's three more tranches uh, or seasons of, to of movies that made us in production right now. Uh, as it relates to Toys That Made Us, uh, all I can tell you is, and I'm sorry to be cheesy, but uh, stay tuned. Uh, that's all I can tell you. Otherwise, I'll be shot. Uh, and then, um, yeah, there, there, there are eight toys. There are eight episodes of Toys That Made Us I want to do, seven of which are traditional episodes. Each episode will focus on one line. Um, and then the eighth would be the last episode, which would be an episode based like – the spinal column of the episode would be LJN's Dune, but um, the, the episode theme would be the toys that should have not been made. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> and I'd like to wrap out the whole series with that episode. That's neat. Because that show, in my mind, is really about risk. Like what I try to do with every episode is show how risky it is to do anything in the toy space and how delicate success is. So that's why I want to end with that episode, because if we do our jobs right, um, it should, in theory, allow every other episode to be viewed under that lens of, man, every single one of these was lucky to get successful kind of hope GoBots is on the list but we'll have to find out for ourselves at some point indeed <laughs> so you you mentioned the enterprise behind you and i know one of the one of the new podcasts is is gates mcfadden talking to you know lavar burton and, and jonathan frakes and you know kind of her old co-stars for you as a star trek fan was that kind of was that like a great you know a holy grail of production almost i mean was that really a neat project for you to do i talk to gates voice or text minimum five days a week i think i met her about 18 months ago you would think it would have worn off by now it it hasn't i mean i and i tell her directly but like i i cannot believe i know her i can't believe she knows my name i can't believe she has my phone number uh, actually, a couple of weeks ago, something really funny happened. She and I were texting and I was like, well, in theory, blah, 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 blah. And, 
you know, there's a one of my favorite Next Generation episodes is called In Theory. And it suddenly hit me. I was texting with Gates McFadden using a Star Trek reference I've been using for 35 years. <laughs> and I just did it in a text chain with Gates. Like, it's so weird. Like, it's so weird in a good way. But it's it's more than like a dream come true. It's more than like surreal. Like I, I can't even, I can't, I can't put it into words. Yeah. I was talking to Ed Newmeyer a couple hours ago. Like I, I, I literally can't believe I'm talking to him. Like it's, yeah, it's just very strange in a good way, but very strange. So, you know, the pandemic has affected us all, obviously, in a lot of different ways. For yourself, how has it affected the projects you're working on and how have you been able to adapt? All right, good. I thought you were going to ask me about toy collecting. Uh, 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 COVID was not, COVID was good for my collection. It was not good for my wallet. Uh, but uh, uh, yes, thank God you asked the safer question. So uh, we were very blessed. We started evacuating our headquarters on February 29th. So by the time the curf or the, uh, the the quarantine went into effect, we had already redistributed all of our staff and equally important, all of our equipment, um, you know, within like a 70 mile ring of our office. So we, we it didn't affect us. Um, and not only did it not affect any of our shows, we we had green lights during covid and we we're, you know, we're shooting a Zac Efron show right now in Australia. That was greenlit during COVID. We do another toy show called A Toy Store Near You that's on Amazon. That was greenlit because of COVID during COVID. Um, and we didn't have anything shut down. So it, it, a worst case scenario I can tell you is it didn't affect us at all. Uh, a best case scenario is I would argue it, it helped our business of, of all the celebrities that you've, that you've worked with, talked with, you know, met with are any of them like surprise toy collectors, like bigger, bigger, you know, a toy collector, maybe that you never thought would ever collect toys. You're maybe just, you know, maybe they're obsessed with them. You know, we don't know about it. Anybody that's run, you've run across like that. So I being such a toy collector for so long, like an extreme one, I kind of know, who's the big toy. Like, I, I kind of know like who's, who's the big toy collector and, and whatever. So I haven't had any big surprises in that way. The surprises that I have had is someone like, I, I can't say who it is, but it, because I don't know if he wants me to be public about it, but he's one of the biggest comedians alive. He's one of the biggest comedians who's ever lived. Um, and I've worked with him many times. So he he is obsessed with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You could Google his name and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You would not. You could spend twenty hours googling it. It'll never come up. He has one of the biggest, best turtles collections on the planet. Nobody knows. There's no pictures of it. Like he he. I did a he did a Facebook whatever it's called with me, and that's how I saw the room. He wouldn't like doesn't let anybody take pictures or anything. Yeah. And I don't know why he's hiding it. Like, you know, like his fan, his fans wouldn't have a problem with it at all, but yeah. So stuff like that comes up. The other thing which kind of comes up, I don't know if this is relevant or not, but like there are people who are connected to certain toys 
that are like obsessed with other toys. Like, I mean, Peter Laird loves GI Joe, loves it. Like Peter Laird could talk GI Joe as much, maybe even more than turtles. Interesting. Yeah. So I always find that very interesting. Well, Brian, it was so awesome having you on the show. We really appreciate it. It's a blast. And uh, looking forward to, to all the stuff you're working on and best of luck with, with everything you got going on. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you both. Okay, now let's get on to guest number two, who does not need an introduction, but we will do one anyway, of course. Whether you're a fan of the 1970s miniseries Roots, the 1980s program Reading Rainbow, or Star Trek The Next Generation, you know LeVar Burton. A longtime entertainer, filmmaker, and storyteller, LeVar hosts a podcast where he reads short fiction books, though more timely, a legion of his fans and LeVar himself want him to take over the permanent hosting spot for Jeopardy, left by the late, great Alex Trebek. It is an honor having you on our show because you have, I mean, had such a rich career and legacy and... You know, you've you've just had such an incredible career. It is a pleasure to have you with us. It it, it, it is a pleasure. Can can we just put a, pa- a pa- pause for a second? Yeah, sure. Brian, you're on the phone. Are you listening? Are you? No, this is my microphone. Yep. Oh, I'm not as cool. No, I'm not as cool though as as Brett over ah. here because Brett got the company to pay for a mic for him, and this is my mic. They got me a mic not and a, like a little soundboard. <laughs> He's got his iPhone, and that's his yeah, mic. Yeah, so. this is how I'm treated. I get it. All right. All right. I'm not on the phone. All right. <laughs> should, totally should, engaged should, right here. I'm angry for you, Brian. I'm outraged uh, yeah, on be. your behalf. <laughs> and I, I want to know who I need to speak to to correct this travesty of justice because this is not acceptable yeah. in my view. I mean, if he tells our bosses that LeVar Burton said to get him a microphone, I think we're going to get him a microphone. I don't see how that's not possible. <laughs> Brian deserves the freaking microphone. Give me the freaking microphone. Get Brian a mic. Okay. So before we started recording, you talked about how you were on the road a lot. And now since pandemic, you have now really taken to it. I mean, what talk about your experience just being pandemic. See, I, 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 I consider myself an itinerant storyteller. I travel traditionally so much during the year going where the story needs to be told, whether I'm acting or directing, like I'm, I was in the rotation on, on NCIS New Orleans until they got canceled a, few, a couple of months back. Um, acting, directing, writing, producing podcast. I have a podcast now, public speaking. That was a large part of my travel um, and, and travel for, for, for business. So the, the, the pandemic really, grounded me um and and prevented i really believe this that that it 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 got me off of a treadmill that was unsustainable right i i don't believe i could have kept up that sort of pace much longer um and so i'm really grateful i'm i'm grateful to have gotten um an opportunity to to take a step back and reevaluate um you know, how I'm living my life. I've removed the words hustle and grind from my daily vocabulary because they're, they're, they're no longer my mindset in terms of how I approach, how I make a living and support my family. I've been, I've been, I've been, I've been on the hustle, you know, since I was 19. Right. Um, And, and it's, it's, it's long enough 
you know, the hustle is and the grind is is for much younger, <laughs> much younger people. <laughs> I want to go into you know to this part of my life in a much more um, graceful um, way. You're currently in the middle of season eight of LeVar Burton Reads, where in each episode you read a different short fiction book. How do you decide which books to pick and what you know what to read? Uh, it's actually a, a, a pretty simple process. I read what I feel like I want to read aloud. When I get ex- when I'm reading a story and I get excited about thinking about how what choices that I would I would make based on the clues that the author has left. What you know what 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 you know, voices what tones. Um, I that's that's how I know. That's how I know when. Um, when the performer in me gets really excited because these, the, the, the episodes of the podcast are what I consider a one-off performance piece, right? In on that day, in that moment, this is what came from me in my effort to represent to an audience of listeners, um, my interpretation of the writer's intention. And every time I read that story, it's going to be slightly different. No two reads are exactly alike. So it really is a, 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 a one-off that is being, you know, encapsulated, you know, caught in amber, if you will. And, um, and that's one of the things that I, I really, I really love about it. I, I, and I consider um, the author, the architect of, of this, of, the story of the experience of, of how I read the story and, and all of my choices I try and, and derive from straight from what I interpret to be the author's intention. So what are some of the, your favorite books that you've read as part of this podcast? Well, um, some of the, the, my favorite stories, uh, I mean, they're, <laughs> if they're on the podcast, then I, I love the story. Um, I, I, I guess the average is I read five to find one. Um, so, you know, for the last few years, m- most of 95, 96% of my reading for pleasure has been taken up uh, reading um, and screening stories for the podcast. Um, I, I only had, a, I've only read two novels um, in this past year um, because it's, it's just been su- such an intense um, period of production. I, I ended up recording the entire season, season eight, um, here at home in, in the closet, in the master bedroom. Um, my wife's got a lot of clothes and, and that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of dampening <laughs> so, as it turns out more than any other, more than any other house, uh, room in the house. It was, you know, it was, it was the closet in the master. So, that's what I mean when I say, you know, we've, we've figured it out and it's, and I think we've been really ingenious and resourceful in, in figuring out. And I know I'm not alone when I say I'm, I'm really not interested in going back to the old way necessarily, certainly not the way um, I was doing the old way. You mentioned you've been on the hustle since you were 19 and you've, you've, you've been a storyteller through so many different mediums and had such an, uh, you know, such an influence on so many generations at this point. How have you though changed the most as a storyteller? How has your voice changed the most over the decades? Wow. Not your, not your voice voice. No, no, no. But, or maybe that too, but just your voice. I, that's a really, that's a, that's a beautiful question, Brian. Um, 
I don't know that anybody's ever asked me that before. I think that as, as I have grown older and, and matured, um, my storyteller voice comes now much more from a place of uh, lived experience. I invest, um, I've always invested myself in the storytelling. However, I will say, I feel like there's, there's more of me to invest. There's a, a broader breadth and wealth of experience that I draw on now. So I, I really feel like that, 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 that the older I get and the more, the, the more you know, life experience I have, I'm able to bring more of that, more of myself to, to the effort of, of storytelling. Um, and I'm, I'm happy for that. I mean, I, I think that ideally that as we grow older and, and amass more you know, lived experience, that in addition to that, we should come to know ourselves better than we did when we were younger, right? And, um, and trust more who we are because we've been living with ourselves longer than anybody else. And, and, and we should have invested enough time, effort, and energy in, in figuring out who we are, right? So I think that that sense of, of meaning, purpose, and gravitas um, should come with, with, with aging. So there is, um, you know, there's been a campaign recently to get you the job as host of Jeopardy. And we've seen the petition go around and we've seen a lot of people share it. Has there been any feedback so far? Has the show gotten in touch with you uh, since this is all taken off? I, I gotta, I've, I've got to believe that they're listening or have heard of it. Right. Um, I, I look, I, I believe that. Um, I believe that if I had let this opportunity go without making it known in any way I could and every way I was able that I, I really, really, really was serious about wanting to do this. If I hadn't given it and turned every stone over, I, I, I would, I would not be able to, I wouldn't be happy with myself. I wouldn't forgive myself. This is something, this is something that I really think is a good idea. I think it's a, I, I think it's a, good it's a good fit of what the show is what the show requires and what i feel like i bring to the table there's only been three other times actually really two other times in my career when i felt this strongly about a role or a part and that was roots playing kunta that was star trek the next generation playing Jordy, and now this i i i, I could say reading rainbow but but I was I was hooked on that from the beginning and, and, it, and it was like there was never a question. They came to me. Right. So it was it was it was mine to 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 blow up. So I feel I feel as strongly about my rightness for this as I, I did about Kunta and Jordi. And I'm invested. I'm that invested in 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 getting the job, right? Well, it's like the Hamilton. Don't throw away your shot. You know, you there's a there's a cha- you know there's a shot here, and you're not going to throw it away. And I'm not going to throw it right. away. Right? Yeah, I think you know that's away. so cool. 
Yeah. And the, and the even and to take it even further, the, 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 the idea that there are a lot of other people out there um, more than the 200 and some odd thousand that have signed the petition, but they're, they're just they're, for everybody who's gone to sign the petition. I think there's at least one or maybe two other people who feel the same way, express the same sentiment, but haven't, haven't gone to, you know, to change.org to actually sign the thing, which is extraordinary when, when you feel like, you, you know, you think, over you know 200,000 people almost 250,000 now have taken the time out of their day to go to this website um sign a petition right put leave an email address and in some cases a donation to you know to help help the effort further along what an extraordinary thing you know um it's like the kickstarter back in 2014 strangers you know well that that come out of the woodwork um, because they believe that what you're doing makes sense, right? Um, and I'm I'm extremely lucky um, and grateful to have that kind of a relationship with with my fans that they would um, extend themselves in in such a manner. Um, and I think that the value proposition is that they feel like in some way I brought value to their lives and. Um, and they're returning the favor. So you have appeared on Celebrity Jeopardy. And in fact, you won Celebrity Jeopardy, which is. I have. I did. I'm most proud of, of, of having won on Celebrity Jeopardy. Um, it feels like one of those shows where you watch it at home and you're like, oh, this is easy. And then you're on the show and it just feels a lot more intimidating. What was it like for you being on very, Jeopardy? Very It's exactly like that. Very intimidating. And I was unprepared for um, how important the buzzer is and the timing of the buzzing. So that was an, that's an, another factor that, that you need to, you know, to, to factor into your play. It's, an, you know, an, uh, another, another, um, another data point that you just have to be aware of um, when you hit the buzzer because um, too early and you get locked out and, 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 and if it's too late, somebody else might have the answer. So sometimes most times you really have to go on faith that you're going to know the answer or the question for the, for the answer. Um, so that's a part of it too, but it is a terrifying experience. Um I remember I used to ask Alex whenever I'd run into him, when are you going to do Celebrity Jeopardy, man? And he was like, LeVar, we're not really interested in lowering the quality of questions just because they're celebrity contestants. And I, 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 I get that. And then they decided to do it. And I was like, OK, it's on. I, 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 I must I must get in there. Um, and, you know, Charles de Gaulle forever <laughs> charles de gaulle is like i should have a charles de gaulle tattoo because that was the final jeopardy question right who is charles de gaulle i don't even remember what 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 the answer was but the the the, the correct the correct was charles de gaulle um and so you know i can die happy I got the final answer on Jeffrey <laughs> when it counted. See, playing at home, it's a different deal. When you're on that stage behind that podium under the heat of the lights, <laughs> fucker time. <laughs> it's true yeah. because the last thing you want to do is embarrass yourself, right? Um, and, and, and the final Jeopardy answer is the litmus test, right? 
Um, so, um, which is all to say that I, I, I love the game. You know, I've, I've, I've watched it almost every night my entire life or since I'm in the fifth grade. And, you know, like, like, like everybody else in America, I just, I, I just think the world of the game. And because we, I think it's because we all love to, you know, measure ourselves uh, against what we know, we just intuit is a very high pressured situation, right? Um, that's, why, that's why it's as popular as it is. What's your best Alex Trebek story? My best Alex Trebek story. Um, I don't know. I, I think the, the one I just told, I mean, that's that, that was, that constituted until I did the show, most of the contact that I ever had with him, you know, running into him at a, uh, I, I remember running into him in Las Vegas. I think they were taping in Vegas and there was some, some kind of convention there where I, I ran into him backstage. Um, he he was unbelievably smooth, and I think you can you can you, you sense that on TV. In person, it's even more apparent just how comfortable he he was um, and relaxed, right? And very 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 uh, very very smooth, just effortless. Um, and and I know that how much work it takes to make it look that easy. So you've, you've mentioned a lot of the work that you've done throughout your career. You have, the, again, this wide reaching legacy. Um, what's the approach that you've taken when it comes to deciding the projects or acting roles that you want to pursue? To not embarrass my family. More to the point to make my mother proud. Right. Um, yeah. Once, once I did Roots, and Roots was my first job, right? Roots was my first professional audition. So my, my beginning in the business was, um, was steeped in, in quality, right? And so um, it, it, it really spoiled me, that experience, in terms of how I wanted um, the work that I did to feel to me. Now, I recognize that I would probably never be involved in anything as large or as important as roots. Um, but I wasn't going to let that stop me from trying. <laughs> right. And so as it happens, just the things that, that have re really resonated with me um, and, and not just that, which I've said yes to, but that, which I have actively pursued. I, I, I feel like I work harder on my career than any agent. Um, because it's my, it's my career. Um, and I've always been uncomfortable just waiting for someone to bring an opportunity to me. Um, I, I developed a, a, a fire early on to continue to do whatever it is I could to generate opportunities for myself. Um, so, the, you know, this, this whole thing makes, uh, you know, it, it makes not only a lot of sense to me on, on the level of, um, this is something I could do. It, it makes sense to me on the level of this is something I really want to do. This is, this is how I want to spend part of the rest of, of, of my career um, is, is standing behind this podium and, and doing justice to the legacy of, of Alex as best as I am, am able. Um, I consider it a great honor um, to be the, the permanent host of Jeopardy, um, and and I and I have absolutely no doubt that I know what that means. 
You know, looking back on Roots, you know, when you think about Roots, whether the miniseries or the Alex Haley novel, what do you think most about though? You know, resonates now in twenty twenty one. What what most resonates now? You know, than maybe at any other time. You know, in there because the 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 um, the seeds of the of of the dynamics that we learned about really as a nation for the first time in roots. It was the first, it was the first um, instance of a public awakening, a general awakening in the population about the, the real truth about slavery um, in terms of, of the damage that it did to, to human beings, right? Um, the willful, um, the willful cruelty of chattel slavery was really pointed out to us for the first time. Um, and, and, and why that's re- relevant is because, the, the, as I say, the dynamics between white people and black in America were formed and formulated then. And what, what we can see and, and what black people have been expressing for so long is that there are two Americas and the America that we experience as people of color is not the same America that you experience. And that the roots of that difference goes all the way back to slavery, because that is where these, these practices and this, even this, the, the unconscious bias, all of that is rooted in the original dynamic between blacks and whites in this country. Now, at the time you were working on roots, did you, understand like how significant and how pivotal the series would be no. or was it till after the fact? No, I was 19. I, I wasn't thinking about the world, you know, uh, uh, on, on that level of chess. I wasn't playing that level of chess. Right. I was a kid. However, I wasn't alone in that because the ABC executives weren't sure how it would play in Peoria. That's why roots was broadcast in eight consecutive nights because they weren't sure whether the, the, the American audience was going to take to the story. The, they, were, they felt like they were taking a huge risk and they tried to mitigate that risk by broadcasting in, in consecutive nights as opposed to weekly installments. Um, the wisdom being if, it, if it's not successful, it'll be over in eight, eight consecutive installments and we can go on with our lives. But the audience grew all, virtually virtually exponentially uh, night after night. You know, we've seen uh, some of your old Next Generation cast members, you know, return in the Star Trek Picard series on Paramount Plus. When's LaForge coming back? You mentioned, you, you mentioned Jordy. When's he, when's he going to come back? Um, I, I believe it's reasonable to expect that he still knows all of those people. It was great when we saw the, the Rikers, um, you know, last season. And I, I know that they're talking about Q coming in this coming season. Um, uh, it I, I seems, seems like contrary to what I just said, I'm spending a lot of time waiting for the phone to ring right now. <laughs> It's like, who's going to get me first, Jeopardy or Star Trek? (laughs) (laughs) Which is proof positive that we are none of us in as much control of our fates as we'd like to believe. (laughs) (laughs) So what what are some fond memories you have working on? Next generation and what do you remember? Just the best. Working on Star Trek was the best professional experience of my life because of the quality of the, of, of the relationships that, that 
were established there and continue to be expressed among us to this day. We simply love one another um, through thick and thin. And we have seen one another through thick and thin. And, and, and still we are bound together willingly um, because we genuinely do love each other. And I, I honestly believe that, that that is at least a, a, a small part of the, of the success of the show. I think that bond that we had almost instantly um, showed up on the screen. Um, the love that we really have for each other showed up in the dynamics of those characters. And um, because that's, that's the thing that people when talking about next gen is the thing that they seem to refer to more than anything else is that they just like spending time with these people because these people um, um, were familiar to them, right? They could see themselves in these people. Um, so yeah, um, that's, that's the best thing. I mean, when I got married, Brent was my best man. Um, my groomsmen were Michael, Jonathan and Patrick. Um, it, it, it makes for an extraordinary wedding picture. Not everyone can claim data as their best man. That's no, pretty incredible. Not everybody can, but I can. I can. You've you've educated and entertained so many so many generations and fans over the course of the years. What entertains you right now? How are you? You know, and what what? How are you educating yourself right now? What kind of you know? What's for in your life now that you're waiting for the phone to ring? You know, kind of what's making you happy? Well, I've, I've continued to be busy during the pandemic, busier than I ever expected to be. I thought this was going to be a, a period of, you know, reading and, 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 and writing. Um, but it's been incredibly, it's been an incredibly active period nonetheless. Um, what makes me happy these days? Um, knowing that I'm in the right place, doing what I meant to do, Right. I believe that everybody has a specific purpose in life when, you know, when they, when they're born. Right. And the, the job of being human, I think, is to figure out what that purpose is and then have the courage to go and, and, and do that thing because that purpose is your gift. And you have to have the courage to pursue your gift relentlessly. Right. Um, and you have to have the, the, the gratitude to know that when, when you are in that position of delivering your gift, that, that, being in your purpose is indeed the biggest reward. And, and if you can manage to manifest a situation like that, it will, I believe, supply um, your monetary, your physical needs. So, you know, you, you reading rainbows obviously been a huge part of your legacy as well. Are you still involved in any other educational endeavors and in, in involving kids or, or is that? Something- I am. I, 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 I am. There are a couple of initiatives that we are going to be announcing very, very soon um, uh, of um, services that I, I, I am. Uh, I'm joining ongoing efforts to um, that are consistent with the, the kinds of, of, of things that I've, I've stood for, for these, you know, almost 45 years. Um, and yes, reaching a children's audience is still important to me as is uh, reaching an audience of, of, of adults now. I mean, what I'm really looking to do is take the three sort of cornerstones of my career roots, Star Trek and, and reading rainbow and, and, and create content for those audiences and, and the overlap. 
because there is overlap, you know, there, there is a, a, a lovely Venn diagram um, that looks proportional of the overlap between those three fan bases. Um, and not everybody can, can say they have demonstrated the ability to speak to different audiences concurrently, right? Um, as I have been able to do. So um, more of that, please. I just want to continue talking to, 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 to different audiences about things that are important to me, things that I care about, social justice uh, from Roots Literacy, from Reading Rainbow, and our, our eyes on, on the stars and how our um, aspiration to the stars can make our lives on earth right now better. Right. Well, you have parent. You know, you you have p- people who grew up with you on Roots, and people who grew up with you with Reading Rainbow. They're introducing them to you know to their kids, and now the kids are you know doing re, you know listen to the podcast. You know, those kids are listening to the podcast. So it's it's the generational thing. It's just like if you inf- if you influence you know some people early on, then you know if you make making you know make a mark on their lives, which you have, they they pass on that mark to their kids. And when you hit Jeopardy, there you know people are going to be like, "Hey, that's you know that's the guy I grew up with," you know. Yeah. Well, I'm 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 hoping so. Um, we'll see. Um, hoping to hear soon, and because uh, I I really do believe they're 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 paying attention. So, what's today? Tuesday. Yeah, I, I'm hoping it happens this week. It would make sense that it might happen this week. I don't know. I I just. I just think I'm right. I, th- I, 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 I think, I think I bring a lot to the. Uh, I think I bring a lot to the show, and a lot of the right stuff. We're rooting for you. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. Yeah, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Thank you so much for uh, for joining yeah. us. It was a real pleasure. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Peace and blessings, huh? Okay, listeners, your turn. Are you all about Lavar Burton hosting Jeopardy? Do you have a toy Holy Grail that? is something in your collection that you've always wanted. Let's talk about it on Twitter. You can find us at Mothership Pod, or you can tweet at us directly. I'm at Brett Molina 23 And I'm at Brian Truitt. Don't forget, you can email us too. We're at MothershipPod at usatoday.com. That'll do it this week. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to our pilot slash producer of the Mothership this week, Adam Fish. If you like the podcast and don't want to miss an episode moving forward, you can subscribe to the Mothership for free on Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, again, How about you leave us a rating or a review? It helps other people find the show, and we get some awesome feedback. If Apple Podcasts isn't your thing, you can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next week, nerds out. Later. Later.